This would be Kevin Pratt's best alibi for the night four people were shot, three fatally, on Encino Street in Miramar, Florida in August 2009. But it was seven months earlier and more than 300 miles away. On a Thursday afternoon in late January 2009, Kevin's bloodied body lay inside a bath and kitchen store in Jacksonville, Florida, when a sheriff's deputy came upon him. His shirt was off, exposing a wound caused by a bullet that had ripped through his abdomen. Moments earlier, he was going into a nearby apartment complex to meet a girl. But when he walked in an apartment, a guy pulled a gun on him, apparently to rob him. There was a struggle and Kevin was shot. He made it a few hundred feet south of the apartments and into the store, where witnesses said he wasn't telling them much about what happened. And the gunman was never found. Kevin's gunshot wound was serious and he needed emergency surgery. He survived, but he would later tell detectives that the injury led to months of recovery and continued to affect him more than a year later. So when detectives told Kevin he was their prime suspect in the triple murder that happened seven months after the shooting, Kevin said it couldn't be him. He was still recovering from the gunshot and his body was too weak to pull off such an attack, he explained. How could he possibly have killed Faith Bissessor, Davian Bishop, and Nikita Hamilton? I didn't murder these people. I don't know these people. I got shot and I don't have the strength to murder nobody. I can barely move my arm. I don't know how I can kill somebody and kill three people at that. I don't know how I can do that. But the detectives weren't buying it. They were convinced Kevin Pratt was the killer. From the South Florida Sun Sentinel in association with Wondery, this is Felonious Florida, the podcast that leads you into the dark side of the Sunshine State. I'm your host, Emma Kate Austin along with investigative reporter Stephen Hobbs. This is part three, the conclusion of the Encino murders. Less than three weeks after detectives first learned Kevin Pratt was a possible suspect in the Encino Street killings, they had his photo in front of the only survivor of the attack. Camille Hamilton was back in Jamaica when Miramar detectives Steve Toyota and his partner Hector Bertrand flew from Florida to see her on the island. Nearly a year had passed since a mysterious gunman shot her in the face and killed her teenage daughter and two others. The detectives hadn't had a suspect until now, and they were wasting no time building a case. They brought six photos with them. One was a photo of Kevin from his driver's license, taken seven months before the murders. The other photos were fillers, five different black men, all with various types of facial hair. This photo lineup was important and had to be done right. Camille would be shown the photos by a Jamaican contractor for the U.S. Marshals Service. He didn't know which of the photos showed the suspect so that Camille's identification wasn't tainted by any of his reactions. And the procedure would be videotaped so there was a record. It takes place in a bedroom.
Detective Bertrand is behind the camera and the marshal reads a script. He says he'll show her each photo one at a time. Take your time, he tells her, and he shuffles the photos. The first photo is of a man with a thin mustache and goatee. She grabs the photo and studies it. She briefly looks up at Detective Bertrand. 40 seconds go by. It sort of looks like him, she says. The marshal holds the next photo close to Camille's face. The man shown has a thicker mustache and a beard. Camille looks at the photo, then back at Bertrand. Bertrand tells her, we can't help you, Camille. This one looks like him, she says. The photos are shuffled again, and the third one is shown to Camille. It's of Kevin Pratt. In the photo, he has a full beard that goes down his neck. He's balding on top and his hair is cut short on the sides. His front teeth on the top row are gold. Camille leans back and shakes her head. She looks back toward the camera. No, she says. She goes through the final three photos. No, three times. And the recording ends. The stakes were high for the lineup and the detectives had tried to do it by the book. But reporter Stephen Hobbs found that there were still concerns. So there are a couple issues that come up in this video of this lineup. The first is Detective Bertrand. He was in the room when this lineup was taking place. Now, the goal of having that marshal do the lineup is so that there might not be a conscious or unconscious suggestion to Camille saying, this is who the suspect is, or you know, don't pick this person because it's not the suspect. And it's clear just from looking at the video that Camille is looking back at Detective Bertrand, seemingly maybe for help or with uncertainty about what's going on. And the detective even says, Camille, I, I can't help you. You have to do this, you know, from your own memory. He was there for at least the first two photos. It's not actually clear how long, but he testified later that he, he did leave and he left the room during the lineup because he was concerned about Camille constantly looking back at him for help. The other thing that we hear from just listening to this this video and, and watching the video is you can hear Detective Toyota in the background talking. He was talking with Camille's then-husband, and they were in kind of a living room area, which is near where this bedroom was, where the photo lineup was taking place. But one thing is you can hear the detective talking, so presumably maybe the other people in the room could have heard him talking as well. And he said on the video, there's no doubt in my mind that he did it. Sometime after the camera is shut off, perhaps five or ten minutes later, Camille is shown another lineup of photos. This time is different. Instead of the marshal showing Camille photos, it's Detective Toyota. And he knows who the suspect is. He shows her 14 photos. Every one of them is a photo of Kevin Pratt. Detective Toyota later testified that he didn't know why he brought the photos of Kevin. But he showed them to Camille because he wanted to make sure the investigation was on the right track. It was a decision he made on the spot. And Detective Bertrand never turned on the camera. 
Because he didn't, we don't know exactly what happened as Camille was shown the 14 photos of Kevin. They were all driver's license photos that spanned a decade. They showed Kevin with varying facial hair, including some with a full beard. In others, he had a thin mustache or goatee. He also had different hairstyles, from bald to short. According to Detective Toyota's testimony, he asked Camille something like, does he look familiar? Camille picked one of the photos. In it, Kevin had short stubble on his face and was wearing what looked like a skull cap on his head. So the photo that Camille picked was an old one of Kevin. It was actually from January of 2000, which is more than nine years before the murders actually took place. The detective later testified that he wasn't sure if Camille knew just because she kind of either indicated or pointed at this photo, but there was never any kind of conversation as to her recognizing that all the other photos were of the same person. She just kind of seems like zeroed in on that one photo. So the detective later said he wasn't sure that she was even sure that these were all of Kevin. Detective Toyota mentioned the off-camera photo lineup in an affidavit. He wrote that Camille was shown the array of driver's license photos of Kevin. Toyota later said that the reason he, he showed her the photos was just to make sure that the investigation was kind of going on the right track. He thought once she had said no to Kevin during that photo lineup that there might not be another kind of eyewitness procedure again, like a live lineup or another photo lineup. Toyota was concerned that a judge may see this and say that the live lineup could be tainted, that they wouldn't actually be able to do a live lineup because of the fact that he had shown her these 14 photos. Later that night, the detectives had dinner with Camille and her husband. There's no record of what they discussed. But before the detectives returned to Florida, Camille told them she would like the chance to identify their suspect in person. A week after the trip to Jamaica, the detectives were ready to interview Kevin. On August 5th, 2010, nearly a year after the murders, Detective Toyota put out an alert to law enforcement. Kevin Pratt is wanted for questioning. He didn't have to wait long. Just before 8 p.m. that day, Kevin was spotted at a Sunoco gas station in Miami. A police officer wrote that he was asking people for money and harassing them. He'd been warned about loitering there before, so the officer arrested Kevin. Detective Toyota was notified, and two hours later, he and Bertrand were sitting across from Kevin Pratt for the first time. Kevin didn't have to talk with detectives. He hadn't been charged. In fact, they hadn't even told him why they were questioning him. But he agreed to talk anyway. And he did it without having a lawyer present. Detective Toyota went over Kevin's rights. Then Bertrand jumped in. Hey, Kevin, he asked. How long did it take you to grow your beard out like that? Kevin's facial hair was an important issue to sort out. Camille Hamilton hadn't remembered her attacker having a beard. She said he had just a thin mustache. But when police had stopped Kevin twice, just before and just after the murders, officers described him as having a beard. On August 15th, about 24 hours before the murders, a Miami-Dade County officer wrote that Kevin had a beard slash goatee. On August 23rd, 
Six days after the killings, an officer stopped Kevin again, this time farther north in West Palm Beach. He was riding a bicycle through alleys near a gym around noon. He said he was going to look at fish in a nearby canal. But an officer said he appeared to be looking for an opportunistic crime and stopped him for questioning. Kevin was wearing a t-shirt, cargo shorts, and combat boots. He had gold teeth and he was wearing gloves. The officer also wrote in his report that Kevin had a full beard. Kevin's facial hair comes up again and again in this case because one of Camille's description of the perpetrator having a thin mustache, two of the fact that later Detective Toyota said that it was unclear at the time whether or not Kevin had a beard when these murders occurred, and three, because as we can see, about 24 hours before the murders, he is said to have had a beard or goatee by an officer. And then less than a week later, six days later, an office, another officer says that he has a full beard. While we can't be 100% sure what Kevin's facial hair was at the exact moment of these murders, he would have had to potentially shave his goatee or some of his beard and then had it grow into a full beard in the course of six days. Back at the interview, detectives Toyota and Bertrand continued questioning Kevin. They spent the next three hours learning a lot more about his life and finally revealed why they're there. He's a murder suspect. Felonious Florida is brought to you by Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is a fantastic security system providing great protection for your home. But before Simply Safe, home security companies were getting away with a lot. They were overcharging for outdated, complicated systems and trapping people in pricey contracts. That changed 10 years ago when an electrical engineer named Chad Lawrence had a few friends who were burglarized. They wanted security, but there weren't any good options. So Chad started Simply Safe. He got rid of the hidden fees and contracts. He made Simply Safe intuitive and easy to use. He just wanted a security company that treated people right. Now, Simply Safe is the top choice security system of CNET, PCMag, and Wirecutter. But most importantly, over 2 million people trust it to keep them safe. All because Chad wanted to help his friends who were burglarized. Go to simplysafe.com Florida to get yours today. That's simplysafe.com slash Florida. Kevin Pratt had been living somewhat of a nomadic life. He was 32 years old, bouncing around from place to place, staying with friends. Sometimes he'd get a hotel room for a day or two. Kevin gave detectives the names of some of the people he had stayed with, but they couldn't find them. He'd lived in South Florida for just about his entire life. He was born in Los Angeles, but grew up in the North Miami Beach area. According to Kevin, he had family in South Florida, but he didn't really know his parents, and he'd spent time in foster care. He also had a brother, but lost him in a tragedy that made headlines in July 1989. His name was Tori. 
When Kevin was 11, the brothers were swimming at a beach on Key Biscayne, near Miami. They were there celebrating a cousin's birthday. As they were being called to shore for the lighting of birthday candles, water bikers swept in and caused waves that overwhelmed the boys. Tori couldn't swim. Kevin grabbed him but couldn't hold on. An article in the Miami Herald quoted Kevin. He swallowed a lot of water, he said. Kevin's little brother drowned at age seven. Kevin dropped out of high school in the 10th grade, he told the detectives. He worked in environmental cleanup, and he was operating heavy machinery until the Jacksonville shooting in January 2009. He had to give that work up after his injury. After he had been shot, he went to recover in West Palm Beach. It was at a drug program. He used to drink a little bit, and that helped him get in, he said. But that's not why he was there. It provided shelter where he could recover from the bullet wound. Now, without steady work, Kevin said he would sometimes offer to pump gas for people or wash their windshields for tips. More recently, he said he'd been working at a dock in Miami. Detective Toyota would later note Kevin's financial struggles in an affidavit. His bank account was overdrawn by a few dollars around the time of the murders. Have you ever been to Miramar? The detectives asked. Kevin said it had been a while, but he used to have a girlfriend there, and they'd go to wash their clothes at a shopping plaza. But that was years earlier, maybe in the early 2000s. Detective Toyota points out that Kevin was stopped by an officer in Miramar in August 2009. Yeah, I remember that, he said. It was a little over a week before the murders on Encino Street. A Miramar officer had seen Kevin panhandling at an intersection in the city. The detectives wanted to know what Kevin was doing there, just two miles from the murder scene. Kevin told them he was working for the Homeless Voice, a newspaper that's handed out on street corners across Florida to raise awareness about homelessness. He'd earn about $40 to $70 a day. Kevin said he was living in Miami at that time and didn't have a car. On August 8th, he was dropped off in Miramar, where he started handing out newspapers. The officer, who didn't describe what Kevin looked like, told him to leave. Kevin said he did, and hadn't been back to Miramar. Kevin wasn't able to give detectives a strong alibi for the night of the murders. But by the time he was being questioned, nearly a full year had passed. Detective Toyota showed Kevin photos of the Encino Street home and the Mercury Sable that was at the scene and pictures of the victims. It was nearly an hour into the interview and they finally got to the point. It's been all over the news, they told Kevin. Three of the people in those photos were murdered. They asked Kevin if he knew anything about it. Kevin said he didn't. Toyota began to hint to Kevin that they had found evidence that placed him at the crime scene. There's science out there that led us to you, he told Kevin. And there was, but it wasn't as strong as they were leading Kevin to believe. Less than a month earlier, the detectives had been told by both the DNA manager of the crime lab and prosecutors that DNA evidence that returned Kevin's name wasn't enough on its own to arrest Kevin. 
but if they had any concern about the DNA evidence, they weren't showing it in their interview that day. Detective Toyota is heard first. Scientists told us that, and I can't get into specifics on where you left your, let's say, call it evidence, but it's pretty compelling on where your DNA is. Kevin, just take a deep breath, man. It's, it's, I, I'm telling you, man, you, you're going to feel so much better. I mean, you know, you just, it's, you got to, man. You, you, you just make peace for them, make peace for yourself. I have peace. My, my, my aunt, she's a pastor. I have family. I have a church. My, my aunt, she's on her own church. She's a pastor of the church. And I frequent the church every now and then. I mean, these people look some like people you said look like very nice people you know I, I don't know them people I've never seen them people damn my life no, I'm not saying you know them and I'm not saying that you went there and intending on but but something happened that night and, and and evidence tells us that you were there okay I was at the scene you were there okay that's that's how that's how that's why we're here okay well, sir I, you know I, I can't I can't say I'm not gonna sit up and tell you something that I don't know nothing about Kevin wasn't budging he told the detectives about the shooting in Jacksonville that he said left him too weak to have committed such a physical attack so I'm Man, still I'm personally I'm still suffering from this gunshot wound. I'm dealing with this every day. I just checked out of the hospital the other day. I, I would have a complication of breathing. This stuff is this is still bothering me. So you know, I had a surgery in the kidney. I had to stay stuck a tube in the kidney, and I'm going. I'm dealing with that. Okay. You know, and you know, I mean, I'm I'm dealing with this, trying to get you know, trying to get myself back together. Bro, you know, I panhandle. I do what I got to. Not panhandle, but I, you know, I do the little car wash and do what I got to do. I you know, I don't know about. It nothing about killing these people here. I can tell you, I'm not finna sit up here. I'm not even wasting time. I'm not finna sit up and tell you I did it. So, you know, if you're going to arrest me for it, then I just have to go down for it. You know, I just... No, but we don't want to arrest the wrong person, but the problem is your DNA is, is in the scene. Again and again during the interview, the detectives tried to get Kevin to confess to the murders. They told him about the surviving victim and pushed him to confess for her. Yeah, if I'd done it, I'd plead guilty to it. You could check my record. I would plead. I, I would tell you I'd done something yeah. if I did it. But this is a whole different mag. This is a whole different ball game. This right. is not like a, a theft or a burglary. Or this is not. This is probably one of the hardest things ever to admit to. Kevin, let me ask you this. Yeah, I don't. I don't admit to it. I don't have no problem admitting to it if I'd done it. Kevin offered to provide more samples to be tested for DNA, but Detective Bertrand told him it's been tested and retested. He said I was there. I'm not agreeing with that. He said I was there. I said I was not. I know. There. I heard what you said. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what. Okay. And and you know, for somebody to say, well, you know, I'm willing to face the consequences, but I didn't do it. Well, nobody would be want want to be punished for something they didn't do. I'm trying to tell you that right now. And Toyota told Kevin that DNA evidence is strong. 
we know that as investigators, people do make mistakes. Witnesses can make mistakes about identification. But when it comes to things like DNA and fingerprints, those are, those are, and, and I'll be honest with you, when we look at like building a good case, we have, well, down here is like eyewitness identification. Fingerprints, DNA is the ultimate. Kevin's denials never wavered. But after three hours, he had had enough of the questioning. I don't have anything else to say, he told the detectives. And the interview was over. It was almost one in the morning. The detectives left the police station with little more than they had when they arrived. Later that day, Kevin was set free. After their first interview with Kevin, detectives were keeping their eyes on him. Nearly two months later, after a court hearing in Miami-Dade County, they followed him after he left the courthouse, trying to find people he knew. It was a bizarre stakeout. So at this point in the investigation, detectives were trying to talk with people that maybe knew Kevin, friends, or people he was staying with. They tried a little bit with family, but weren't able to really get much information. So they one day decided to follow him outside of a court hearing. His hearing actually got canceled that day, and when he left the courthouse, Detective Toyota, Detective Bertrand, and at least another officer, they followed Kevin in in their cars, different cars, unmarked cars, just trying to see where he went. Did he go talk to anyone? Was there any people that they could follow up with and try to find more information about Kevin? Did he ever say anything about the murders to other people that he wasn't telling the detectives? And what was really interesting is as they're following him in these unmarked cars, Detective Toyota later said that there were points where maybe he stopped and started stretching and then he would run or he would walk kind of aimlessly. It didn't seem like he really had a place that he was going, a destination that he was going. And this went on for hours and he didn't really go to any homes or talk with any people. So they weren't able to get much information about it. And, and the other thing was just he also appeared to have kind of ratty clothes on. It went on for about seven hours. And Kevin walked and ran the streets of Miami without talking with anybody. Detectives had learned nothing. Well, almost nothing. Detective Toyota later wrote that Kevin appeared to be homeless. The detectives would try again months later to interview Kevin. It was March of 2011, and Kevin agreed to meet with them, and again didn't ask for an attorney. Kevin didn't budge, and without a confession, they'd have to keep looking at evidence from Encino Street. More DNA tests were done, including on the duct tape from the crime scene. The process would take time, but that's something detectives suddenly had. Kevin was back in prison, and was going to be there for a while. Kevin Pratt was accused of punching a cop who had pulled him over for erratic driving. He was in a rental car, and the officer said Kevin had a knife in the center console. When he tried to take Kevin out of the car, they got in a scuffle. Kevin was charged with battery on a law enforcement officer and resisting arrest with violence. That was February 2010, six months after the Encino Street murders. It took almost a year for Kevin to be sentenced for the incident. With Kevin behind bars, new DNA tests were performed on pieces of duct tape that had been taken from the murder scene. An earlier test that had led detectives to Kevin Pratt was far from conclusive. 
it had found a mixture of DNA from at least three people on a roll of duct tape that was next to the bodies. Kevin couldn't be ruled out as one of them. With more advanced DNA testing an option, Miramar hired an outside crime lab. In June 2011, the new lab was sent a swab from the roll of duct tape. The lab repeated the first test that had been done by the county crime lab, but it also did a second test. This one focused on Y chromosomes, those only belonging to men. The results took months. Meanwhile, detectives used the time to grant Camille Hamilton her request to face the suspect in person. They would arrange a live lineup in front of her, and they planned for a stunning twist aimed at getting him to confess. It happened on September 8, 2011, more than two years after the murders. Kevin was taken from prison in North Florida to a nearby county jail that had a live lineup room. A deputy from the jail ran the lineup. Camille was read a script. And like the photo lineup in Jamaica, it would be recorded on video. But reporter Stephen Hobbs says there were concerns with this lineup too. One of the things that's important in lineups like this is who's running it and do they know the suspect or not? So the sheriff's deputy who was running this lineup was working at this, this jail is a kind of a small county jail. And so he was aware of the other people who were with Kevin standing there during the live lineup. There was only about 180 people at this county jail to choose from. So there's not a lot of people to choose from that maybe look really similar to Kevin. Just by comparison, in Broward County, there were about 4,400 people in the jail at that time which would have been a much larger population of people to choose from that would look really similar to Kevin. And how that kind of plays out in this lineup is we see that there's a really big age difference in the people that are chosen to stand with Kevin. The six men are lined up facing the wall with their backs to Camille. One by one, they are told to turn to face her, then turn left, then right, then back to the wall. Kevin Pratt is number four. On the video, Camille is not visible as Kevin turns to face her. But the deputy running the lineup would later say that her knees buckled when she saw him. The last two men face her. Then Camille is asked if she recognized any of them. She asks to see numbers four and five again, so they repeat the whole lineup. Then they do it again, and this time they're asked to smile. Camille wants to see their teeth. She said the man who attacked her had gold teeth on his bottom row. Kevin shows his gold teeth, but he has them on the top and bottom. you recognize any of the six individuals as a person who you saw commit the crime? Camille pauses for a moment, then stands up and softly says, Number four, Kevin Pratt. The lineup lasted nearly 25 minutes and was over. But the real drama of the day wasn't. The detectives had planned it for months. The first two interviews with Kevin didn't lead to a confession, so they tried an unusual tactic. The detectives had Kevin in an interview room after the lineup and were asking him the same questions they had asked over and over before. More than 45 minutes into the interview, the door opens and Camille Hamilton walks in. 
Kevin, I want, you, I want to introduce you to somebody. This is Camille. You don't remember me? I remember you. You don't remember my daughter? She looked just like me. My friend and her son. You don't remember in the driveway where we were standing? My back was turned to the road. And when you came up and you asked me for money, I remember you. You asked me for money. I didn't have any money to give you. You think my daughter, my friend, and her son. You did this to me. I never ever forget you. Don't forget you. Detective Bertrand urges Kevin to say something. Apologize, Camille pleads with him. Just tell me that you are sorry to take the little girl from me. <coughs> Please, stop begging me to say it. <coughs> Why did you do this? <coughs> what did you hurt us? For 15 minutes, she goes on. But Kevin never says a word. Camille's sorrow turns to anger. You're not sorry, though. You You're not sorry. Oh, You're not sorry. You're not sorry. Camille is escorted from the room. You have an opportunity, this is it's a rare gift, to make better what happened. It's a rare gift, dude. I am giving you this gift for you to take. Kevin doesn't take the offer, and the interview is over. Detectives didn't have a confession from Kevin, but they did have Camille's identification of him from the lineup. Two weeks later, they would have something even bigger. Results from the new round of DNA testing by the outside lab came in on September 22, 2011. It was more than a year after the county crime lab's initial report surfaced Kevin's name, but wasn't conclusive. This time, the results were stronger. The report said the chance that the DNA belonged to an unrelated person was 1 in 12 billion. The results were a dramatic improvement. Kevin Pratt could finally be charged with murder. Camille Hamilton and Detective Steve Toyota stood in front of news cameras. The case had finally been solved. Kevin Pratt was the ruthless killer, Toyota said. There would finally be justice for Faith, 
Davian, and Nikita. The detective explained the DNA evidence at the press conference. It matched so much that the chance of anybody being chosen at random was 1 in 12 billion, which is greater than the world's population. Camille spoke about her confrontation with Kevin. When I saw him, I'd never forget what he looks like. Never. I remember him very well. The case against Kevin looks strong. I'm happy that justice is going to be done. The next week, the detectives from Miramar head to the prison in North Florida where Kevin's been behind bars. He's wearing a blue prison uniform as Detective Toyota reads him the arrest warrant that formally charges Kevin with the Encino murders. They give him one last chance to come clean. There's no mistake, Kevin. You were inside that house. That's not a mistake. You touched one of the items that was used in the commission of the crime. That's no mistake. Your DNA positively 100%, 1 in 12 billion, identifies you as the person that was there. That's not a mistake. The victim coming in and identifying you is not a mistake. You being in that area right before it happened and being stopped by the police, it's not a mistake. You see how things are piling up? You see how it's getting stacked and stacked and stacked against you? Kevin continues to say he's innocent, then runs out of patience. Trying to do a murder, right? Three counts of murder. Yeah, that's all I need to know. That's it, man. Start, start the court proceedings. Start the court proceedings. That's it. You don't want to dispute it? Nope, I'll do that in court. you do that in court. Kevin is through talking. He stands up. And even though his hands are cuffed behind him, he opens up the interview room door and steps into the hallway. You're a coward, Bertrand says, and the door closes. So they don't have a confession. At least there's still the DNA. But the detectives were in for another disappointment. The state of Florida versus Kevin Pratt began its years-long march through the court system. The strongest piece of evidence against him was the new DNA test. But the understanding of DNA testing was changing. And by 2013, nearly two years had passed since the more conclusive test results. That's when the prosecutor, Alberto Ribas, called the DNA analyst at the private lab to go over the results again. She took a look, and what Tiffany Roy saw was troubling. The evidence had a mixture of DNA from multiple people, and new guidelines had been issued that called for a more conservative approach for this kind of DNA profile. Roy's first test had looked only at the DNA that was present. The new guidelines said analysts should also consider what parts of the DNA might be missing. So Roy said she felt obligated to bring up her concerns about the results. There were low levels of DNA found on the duct tape, and she was less confident with the results than she was in her first report. So she issued a new one in June 2013. In it, she said the DNA results were inconclusive, 
Kevin Pratt did have similar DNA to the DNA found on the roll of duct tape, but she needed more advanced tools to analyze it. This isn't something I need to be ashamed about because this came about from advancements in the technology. This is something that affected the entire field that we now understood that this data was so unreliable that we shouldn't be making interpretations because we can't be certain about what it's telling us. And so I felt like I could not go into court and say with, with any level of certainty, um, you know, that this person was included or anyone was included in that data given, given the quality of that profile, because now I know that that wasn't applied properly. We don't know what the chances of a random person being included And we don't know how common or rare that would be. And so to go into court and say that it was one in a million or one in 12 billion with the combined statistic is misleading. And people, you know, now I knew that that was misleading. Um, And so I couldn't go in and present that in good conscience. As the years went on, the questions about the DNA evidence against Kevin Pratt were never fully resolved. Meanwhile, Kevin's defense attorneys pointed out other potential weaknesses in the case against him, like that Kevin's fingerprints weren't found at the scene. And they obtained handwritten notes from Detective Toyota that referenced conversations he'd had with Camille, conversations that were not recorded. Those notes described times where Camille was shown photos early in the investigation, before Kevin was a suspect. She singled out two men she said resembled her attacker, but the detective didn't put that in his reports. Toyota later testified that he didn't consider those to be identifications. But despite the defense's efforts to chip away at the case and the change in DNA results, Detective Toyota stayed firm on Kevin's guilt. He believed the DNA found on the duct tape matched Kevin's. By 2017, the charges against Kevin Pratt were nearly five and a half years old, and the judge was expressing concerns. Bringing the case to a jury was a problem for both sides. The prosecution had issues with its two main pieces of evidence, DNA and the eyewitness testimony from Camille. But even though Kevin insisted he didn't kill anybody, he didn't have a great alibi for the night of the murders. It was a horrific crime, and he was facing the death penalty. The judge urged both sides to come up with a resolution. So that's what they did. On February 21st, 2017, they went into court with a deal. The state agreed to the minimum sentence for the crimes, 10 years because a gun was involved. And they agreed to credit him for the more than five years he had spent in jail since his arrest. His sentence will be followed by 15 years of probation. The punishment is a disappointment for Camille Hamilton and the families of the victims who believe Kevin Pratt was the killer, and for detectives who spent years trying to solve the case. But the risk that he might go free and unpunished was too great. And for Kevin, the deal would mean he'd have to spend nearly five more years in prison. When the judge asked him how he pleaded to the murder charges, Kevin paused for a moment before saying, Guilty. Camille stepped to the podium, yelled at him for an apology, and told the judge Kevin deserved to be put to death. As she's escorted away, Camille said to Kevin, God is going to punish you. You may not be punished by the law, 
but you're going to be punished, Kevin Pratt. It's been a year and a half since the emotional day in court. Sitting in her living room in Florida, Camille Hamilton says it's hard for her to smile these days. Even when it happens, her thoughts return to her daughter, Nikita Hamilton. She still keeps a room for Nikki, set up like she had it in her room in Jamaica. Sometimes she comes into the room and lies down, and she talks to her daughter. In fact, she talks to her a lot. When she's driving, walking, cooking, it helps her feel like Nikki's still there with her. She writes to her in a journal, too, telling her what's happened in the days that have passed since her death. Camille's reminded of the horrifying night every time she looks in the mirror. The damage caused by the bullet to her face required surgery after surgery. She wants another to reduce pain and help resolve some of the damage done to her eye. In August, she went back to Jamaica to visit family and spend time with friends. Her face brightens when she reminisces about the trip. Until the grief returns, as it often does. She fights it by keeping herself busy, working a lot, talking to friends and cooking. Someday, she wants to go back to school to become a phlebotomist or even a nurse. I'm strong and I'm tough. And that's what Nikki would want mommy to be, a fighter and a strong person. What I'm doing, I'm doing it for her. She was so sweet and she was a strong little girl. And she was so smart. And I promise her, promise her, I promise her that I'm going to do the things that she like and I'm going to fulfill all her dreams. And that's what I'm trying to do. Camille knows her statements were inconsistent early in the investigation. But she was on anesthesia and painkillers, she says. Her jaw was wired shut, and she was grieving. And she says today she is certain that Kevin Pratt is the man who shot her and murdered her daughter and friends. Even during the photo lineup in Jamaica, her mind still wasn't right, she says. She was processing the loss of her daughter and the terrifying attack that night on Encino Street. But today, she doesn't doubt her memory. Kevin is the one who take my child life, my friend, and her son, and leave me to die. He's the one who did that. I never forget him. I'm talking to you now, and it's like I'm, I'm talking to him. It's him. He did it. When it happened to me and I was in the hospital, I couldn't talk. My mouth was wired. I couldn't pronounce. I couldn't talk. I was out of it. Put yourself in my position. I lose my only child. 
What was there to think about or talk about at that moment? Trust me, I think everything I wish I can kill in myself. I should have shot him. I don't know why, miss. At the hearing, and when he said, man, he's not me, and I shut him up, I said, shut up. Don't tell me it's not you. Why is not him and he happy to get the plea bargain? So happy. And then he plea bargain is being guilty. He's so happy to take it. And he's saying, ma'am is not me. I want to walk right over there if I had the chance to. I'm killing myself. Today, Kevin Pratt is behind bars at the Calhoun Correctional Institution, about 50 miles west of Tallahassee, Florida. It's where he's serving his 10-year sentence for the Encino Street triple murder. Although he's never granted an interview, in all of his statements to detectives, he steadfastly maintained his innocence. Pleading guilty let him avoid the possibility of execution. I first started looking at this case about a year and a half ago. And it was right after that plea hearing. What struck me was that it didn't seem like any kind of resolution for this case. And as I kept looking into it and reading through court documents, I saw all the underlying issues that came out in the years that this case was being investigated and then went through the court system after an arrest. But I'm still always returning back to the question that I had when I first read the story about this plea hearing. We possibly have a guy in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. Or we have a guy in prison for 10 years for committing a horrible crime, killing three people and almost killing a fourth. It doesn't seem like it's any kind of resolution at this case. Even though it's a closed case, these questions still remain. And what's most concerning is that if Kevin Pratt isn't the one who committed these crimes, then somebody else did, and somebody else has gotten away with murder. Kevin Pratt is set to be released from prison on October 17, 2021.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Felonious Florida, the conclusion of the Encino murders. That horrifying crime took place in August of 2009. Just two months later, another baffling case landed in the same city. Next week, we'll dive into this new case, one that started as a simple disappearance. A woman had left a late-night work shift and was never seen again. Her friends and family started revealing secrets that had police suspecting something violent had happened. When mysterious texts started coming in from her phone, they were convinced. So they tried a simple but unusual tactic. Something so unusual, a judge had to sign off on it. It was a dramatic gamble. But if it worked, it could solve the case. Listen next week for the story of the disappearance of Lisa Spence. Felonious Florida is produced by the South Florida Sun Sentinel and Wondery. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about our show. It's available online at feloniousflorida.com, Apple Podcasts, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can go online to see photographs, video, and read more about the cases we're featuring at feloniousflorida.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Encino Murders was reported and written by Stephen Hobbs. And I'm your host and sound designer, Emma Kate Austin. Our producers are David Schutz and Juan Ortega. Editing by Randy Roguski. Sound direction by Sean Pitts, with additional recordings by Carlene Jean. Press conference audio was provided by WSVN7. The Felonious Florida team includes Lisa Arthur, Dana Banker, Yaron Zhu, Danny Sanchez, and Kelly Fry. Hi, this is Stephen Hobbs. Local journalism matters. Support us by joining the Sun Sentinel, South Florida's leading source of news, information, and entertainment. Visit sunsentinel.com slash join.